With nothing more, I give you Bill Jay of Raleigh, North Carolina. Thank you, Bob, very much. I wish I had the ability to express my appreciation for being at this wonderful, lovely spot and with you lovely people this weekend. God has certainly been wonderful to me. Last weekend it was our, it was our 11th step retreat in the Blue Ridge Mountains. And uh, this weather and everything is just so wonderful and you feel so close to God here. And it's really terrific. I don't know how long it's going to be before this nervousness uh, leaves me. I, I don't understand it. I'm here with people who love me and understand me the best in the world. I get nervous, and yet we pretend not to be. A little while ago, a lady asked me, said, are you nervous before your, your talk? I said, no, certainly not. Why do you ask? She said, well, I wondered what you were doing in the ladies' restaurant. <laughs> Uh, material inventory 
boys and whatnot, I began worrying about uh, what might have been had I not uh, become an alcoholic. How much money would I have had, uh, how much prestige, and what things I might have accomplished in all this wasted 30 years of, of drinking. And this bothered me considerably. And then I remembered a story that my father used to tell that completely relieved this situation also. It seems that back in the Big Depression, and I see some here who might have been old enough to have remembered it, uh, things were mighty tough, and this one man was looking for a job. He wanted to work. And like any normal human being, he started looking for a job in the better places so he might get uh, a better job. And he didn't get a job, and he went to the next best, best places, and the next, and the next, and finally he was really down. Actually, he ended up in the red light district. And he went up and he knocked on a door. And the lady said, come in. He said, just a minute. He said, I'm here looking for a job. She says, come in. We need a bookkeeper. He said, oh, my goodness. She says, what's the matter? He said, I can't read or write. Well, she slammed the door in his face. This was the end. He went down the steps, took off his hat, and sat on the curb, buried his head in his hands, and just began to weep like a child. And some kind soul came by and dropped a dime in his hat. And he went and bought three apples and ate one and sold the other two. And he did this again and again. And in 15 or 20 years, this guy becomes the biggest fruit and produce man in the whole United States. <laughs> but like so many others, he uh, encountered some trouble with the Internal Revenue Service. And his lawyers and accountants called him in and said, we have worked up something and made an offer and compromise. The government has accepted it. All you have to do is to read it and sign it. He said, I can't read or write. This lawyer looked at him. He said, my goodness, man. You're one of the wealthiest men in this country and quite successful. Where in the world would you have been if you'd had an education? He says, don't mention that. I've been a bookkeeper in a whorehouse. So. <laughs> possibly 
exception of menopause, and I'm not too sure about that. But in telling my story, I, I go back into my family background, and in doing so, please be assured that I in no way intend any dishonor or disrespect to my family. They were wonderful, wonderful, lovable people. It was a sick family. And nor do I make any excuses for myself. I knew right from wrong from the time I was conscious of being a human being. It just seemed the wrong way was the easiest, the best, and the most popular, and I took to it like a duck to water. I don't think I did. I was born in a small town in the mountains of North Carolina. That old Groundhog Day, if this means anything. I was the baby of a family of the mother and father and four children, and of the six people, five were either addicted to alcohol or narcotics. My mother was addicted to narcotics. She'd had a lot of operations, and suffered a lot of pain. The doctors relieved it with panopin. She was a beautiful, clever, and lovely woman, highly educated, charming. And when the doctors tried to withdraw her from Panapin, they discovered that she could read and write Latin as well as any doctor could, could sign his name just like he could. And you can't stop this. I had to commit her to our state hospital in 1942. The rest of the family nearly hung her. They didn't stop her there. She still had a checkbook and a fountain pen. She died five years later, weighed about 60 pounds, just a mere shadow of a formerly beautiful and lovely woman. I had terribly mixed emotions concerning my mother because I loved her dearly and I hated her bitterly. And this is very bad. My father was an alcoholic. But back in the mountains, they didn't call them alcoholics then. You were either a drunk or a heavy drinker who occasionally got too much. And he fell into this latter category because he was a powerful uh, man in the, not just the community, but in uh, 10 or 12 counties in that area. He had been solicitor of his district as a young man. He was about 5 feet 4 and weighed 260 pounds, and he roared like a lion, and he literally shook the earth when he walked, and I was mortally scared to death of him. Nobody called him a drunkard either. But by the grace of God, and I'm sure some sort of a spiritual lift, he was sober the last 10 years of his life. There was no AA there then. And he became the most loveful man I ever knew. And became quite prominent, serving in our Senate for two sessions. I was on the Superior Court bench the last seven years of his life. And he became really a lovable man. And he said the Bible was the greatest law book ever written. I had an older sister, a beautiful and lovely girl, and I should think had every opportunity that anything, that any woman might want in life. Beauty, charm. She was addicted to both alcohol and narcotics. She drank up everything and everybody she came in contact with, including three husbands. One of them was the bishop's son. I say it that way. It sounds funny when you say son of a bishop. But... <laughs> charming, charming person, and everyone loved her, and she could do anything with anybody she wanted to. But this girl spent time over in Kentucky in the federal lockup over there. 
She was completely unamenable to any suggestion of facing reality. She was found dead in a hotel room with an empty second oil bottle and an empty fifth bottle. You should think this would register on me. It didn't. I have another sister, I have another sister who is an alcoholic. And by the grace of God is now 19 years in AA. And I couldn't see the difference. Now this girl had a tough time. Now you've heard of tough times. Here she was an alcoholic, Southern Catholic Democrat, married to a non-alcoholic Yankee Republican Presbyterian. <laughs>
I had no business going to the military school to start with. But when they said come home, I didn't want to go home. The last time I had gone, I couldn't even find it. They'd moved. <laughs> and we lived from the top to the bottom and out east and west and out in the country and everywhere else. I discovered that I could wait on tables, blow a bugle, fire a furnace. And later it was discovered that they gave tuition and fees off for athletics. Now this is no great merit or credit to me because I didn't particularly want to go home. I wanted to stay there. But I was never again to pay to go to school. But also in my middle teens there, I discovered this beverage alcohol. If you can call white Georgia stump hole liquor a beverage. This bootlegger kept this stuff in a great big truck inner tube. It was the biggest thing I've ever seen. He had him a little bun or a spigot on it. And three of us went in there and got a drink of this stuff. And this liquor made me drunk. It made me sick. But it made me something else. It made me belong. It made me, of course, ten feet high and steel wool on my chest. It uh, made me able to sing and dance. It made me forget many of my inhibitions and fears, not all the way, not totally, but almost. And I was to learn in later years that it'll make you see double and feel single, too. I promise you that. <laughs> it made me more acceptable to society and made society more acceptable by me. After about 25 or 30 minutes, these boys said, let's go back and get another drink. And guess what? I'd already been back twice. <laughs> I was not a normal drinker from the very beginning. And I'll say this about myself and many of the aristocratic southerners, as they call themselves. Social drinking down there is just this. One guy says, I think I'll get drunk and raise hell, and the other one says, so shall I. That's it. <laughs> seeing me drunk on several occasions admonished me that if I was going to drink I had better learn to hold it. It was the code of the hills. And so after much practice for a long period of time I actually learned to scotch myself against staggering, slurring my words, misbehaving badly when it was important not to, to the point where when I came in AA several of my friends in there who I knew quite well they said, well, we didn't know you had a problem. We'd never seen you drunk. Well, I figured that out later on. They'd never seen me sober. How would they know the difference? This was just what it was. Now, I left military school. I went to college on an athletic scholarship. I was supposed to go to the University of North Carolina where my father and brother had gone. But there they won't give you an athletic scholarship. If your parents went, they think they'll make you go anyway. They really got pride there. But when Wake Forest suggested room, board, laundry, tuition, and fees, my father declared it was one of the greatest schools in the country. <laughs> and I went. And in spite of alcohol, I had a good uh, academic and athletic career. I had no trouble with my courses, with this photographic memory, pick up things just enough to get through. And if I missed a lecture, I was a pretty good lateral reader, too. <laughs> You know, in college, athletes like to acquire a nickname of some sort, and I acquired one. I didn't have to wait till my junior or senior year. I got it after I'd been there 60 days. It didn't have anything to do with athletics because I was known as Whiskey Bill. 
Now, this is something to write home about, you know. Not because I was drunk all the time, but because I was either going after liquor or coming back with it, or on a party or sleeping it off or planning one, something frivolous, no direction. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was very confused. And it had already become this total fraud that I mentioned because I was a dunce that looked like a scholar. I was a bum that looked like a prince. I was considered by my friends as an outgoing and generous and lovable fellow. And any generosity I had had an underlying motive, I promise you, I was buying favor or trying to be a big shot or seeking companionship of that sort. I think really when I look back that had I engaged in this thing they call training, uh, I might have made a name for myself as an athlete because there were flashes of brilliance as it was. Uh, for instance, one Saturday morning in my sophomore year, in the track meet with the worst hangover I'd ever had in my life till that time, I broke the college 100-yard dash record. And if they had been a jug of liquor at the end of the track, you'd have read about a new world record, too. <laughs> it had become my god way back there at uh, 19 and 20 and 21, along there. I loved it, all kinds of it. Beer, no, they why send a boy to do a man's job. I didn't care for that, but I could sop it with a biscuit, all kinds of it. I wasn't getting anywhere. My sort of life needed money. And so in the middle of my junior year, I quit and went to Raleigh and went to work. Went to the Treasury Department. Hmm, I wonder how bad they think that would be now if they think about it. But uh, I hadn't been there long when this older brother of mine, who was a brilliant student, had failed the bar examination for lawyers there four or five times. He didn't want to be a lawyer. He wanted to be an engineer. And I don't know why he didn't want to be a lawyer, because I don't think he felt like he could fill his father's shoes. Well, I took up law, went into it at night school, and back to college to listen to the lectures of Dr. Gully and Timberlake and others. And it came to me very readily. I finished the course, but yet I was never to take the bar. I went in service in July before I was to take it in August. When I came out of service, my father had passed away. They had changed the law, required another two years of college if you hadn't taken it in a certain prescribed period of time. So I never took it. It's just as well. I'd never passed any other bar, so I don't know why I should expect to pass that one. But it was an invaluable education, I do promise you that. In 1939, I courted and married the loveliest creature that I've ever seen. Oh, and as I look back now, I can see what this man was thinking. Here was all of the missed love that I had looked for all of my life. This was the answer to all of my problems. And of course, no human being could answer those things. I thought she was going to have a drinking problem at first. She would get to drinking and get silly and cut up and vomit and uh, invite uh, 12 people to breakfast and forget about it and... Uh, and here I was, the one that in the crowd, that if we were going somewhere, they'd say, let Bill drive, he'll get us back. And if someone got in trouble with the law, well, get Bill, he'll straighten it out. And this was it. it even on into within a couple of years of uh, before coming in this program, well, I was one of these scoundrels that some of you fellows have heard your wife say, why don't you drink like Bill? Really? <laughs> I've had a fellow come to me and say, my wife says this, well, wish you'd get drunk tonight and make an ass out of yourself so she'll quit this. I can hold it. 
I had a great tolerance for it. And I went in service. Here again, in spite of alcohol, I had a good military career. I went as a private and came out as a major. Well, this sounds wonderful. So what? I'd been in it since I was 13 years of age. I had been commissioned in the infantry when I was 21 and let it lapse because of not going to camp. And it came to me very readily. And, of course, I never got out of the country. Yet, I wanted to go by to Canada, too. I made application for overseas duty every Monday morning, you know, and all of these things. And I held some pretty high positions. I was director of military training at a large base out in Texas. In Texas, incidentally, from here, you get there by going west till you smell it and then turn south till you step in it. I'll tell you what. <laughs>
All your work, all your work in lobbying, of course, is after the sessions are over in the dark rooms of the hotel at 2.30 in the morning and this, that, and the other, and you're justified staying out, the wife can't fuss, and I had to see a certain member and get him squared away on this bill. And uh, I took great credit for my accomplishments, though, in the legislature, only to get sober one day in AA and look back. These people had been doing favors for me out of memory and respect of my father, who had been president pro tem of the Senate. I looked just like him, talked just like him, and then I was some 45 pounds heavier. I can very clearly see I was telling his same old jokes and using his mannerisms and everything else. Oh, I don't say some talent wasn't involved. We can pick that up watching television and Perry Mason or somebody. But uh, I did right well for these people, and occasionally, when I felt on real safe ground, I would resign. But I wouldn't resign, I promise you, unless I had just accomplished something very important for their industry, like getting a tax reduction on a certain package or opening up a new county, and they would naturally say, well, you can't resign, we need you. And this builds your ego up, you know, and that's nice. How about a raise? So this works, too. I got three raises this way, and the fourth time that I resigned, they again declined it. And then they went home and got sober and came back and changed their minds. <laughs> I knew this would coming. We alcoholics were smart. And a year before, I had taken a part-time contract with a very fine insurance company, had trained myself without doing business. And when I left them, I just stepped into this like a ball of fire. I just set the woods on fire. All I had to do was push the button and go get what the manager wanted. And this was Lloyd. Up to this time, however, for some reason or other, I've been in the hospital four or five times. Viruses, back strains, and acute gastroenteritis, and these things that the insurance will pay on, but they won't on alcoholism, you know. And uh, this fire didn't burn too long. I, I got to the place where I couldn't uh, push the button, couldn't even get up and get out and find the darn button. I was drinking a half a gallon of whiskey a day those last three years. Now, some people raise their eyebrows at this figure. If you divide that into a 16-hour drinking day, that's not but four ounces an hour. I think I would shorten myself a little bit. <laughs> and some of my mountain friends would have asked me if I was tapering off, I think. But I had to have a half a pint before I could shave in the morning. The bed which I slept both winter and summer, from heel to head, was wringing wet with this filthy, stinking, alcoholic perspiration. And no number of baths would seem to get me clean. Reminds me of the cannibal that visited another cannibal island, and his host was taking him around, and they naturally ended up in the meat market. And uh, his visitor said, there's something I'd like to ask you about these prices you've got in. I said, what's wrong? He said, well, nothing much. He said, this... Two dollars and a half a pound for sailor meat is, is right. He's salty and he's tough. And it's five dollars a pound for missionary. That's all right. He's juicy and he's tough. But how are you getting this seven dollars and a half pound for a skidder or alcoholic? He said, Mister, you ever tried to clean one of them things? <laughs> yes, I was. I was filthy inside and out. 
I won't go into details of my drinking behavior. Your cruelest imagination would be generous compared to the true facts. I know all about the DTs and the convulsions. I'd sit on the side of the bed with one shoe on and one off and not knowing whether I'd get up or going to bed. Convulsions, well, they're not so bad. You feel so good when they're over, you know. But um, DTs, uh, they were pretty good company. Uh, the auditory, the John Philip Sousa in this left ear was pretty annoying at times. I couldn't cut it off, but I could take a few and change the tune. <laughs> One time I got it switched over. Uh, South Sea Island Magic came through real good, but uh, one time I got an old army tune I had heard, Does Your Spearmint Lose Its Flavor on the <laughs> And I never could get that one cut off. I had to go to the hospital. <laughs> but things were not going well at home. Now, if you would see my wife, you would say that she is a lovely, tall, beautiful, serene, and soft-spoken lady. And she is. But I promise you I've seen her when she looked like hell wearing a bonnet and could make more noise than a truckload of turkeys going through the Holland Tunnel, too. Uh, yeah. <laughs> One hot Sunday morning, something had gone wrong with my drinking, uh, program. I kept two pints in the car, two at the office, two at the club, and two at the house. And if I went anywhere, I went in my car. And something happened that morning. There wasn't any in the house, there wasn't any in the car. And uh, I raised the dickens about it and said I was going to take the car and go downtown. And she had the audacity to compare her need of taking it and going to church. And the church was just 30 yards away. Well, one thing led to another. And this little gal, in a fit of temper, liked to have beat me to death before she got out of it. I don't know whether she used a high heel shoe, a shoe, or a poker, but I had holes all in me. <laughs> and when she got through, she says, now, if you leave, pack your things and keep going. And she didn't realize who she was talking to, but that's what I did. And I left, and I went to Orlando, Florida. I severed relations with everything in North Carolina, and I was going down to join my brother and his wife and get a divorce. Orlando is 630 miles from Raleigh, or six and a half pints of Glenmore and two Budweiser's. That's, I don't know where I stayed the first night. I, I was a hospital case before I left. I had been drinking consistently for 21 consecutive months. And I was a sick person. I didn't know it. I drove up in my brother's yard. His wife came out and looked at me. She said, well, it doesn't look like anything's wrong with you. See, she'd been talking to some of those liars back in Raleigh. And I said, well, there's not. And yet I was just about to fly to pieces. So I was sort of like the fellow that said he got so frustrated and upset one night that he ran out of the house and jumped on a horse and rode off in four different directions. And I was about like this. I couldn't have been... Looked so badly, a couple of drinks would clear my eyes up, and as I say, I didn't stagger. I was bloated, but my sister-in-law asked me, after seeing in my belongings my book of common prayer, would I take her to church? My brother doesn't go to church. I don't know why. That's his business. 
I said, yes. And I wanted to get it over with. I said, we'll go Sunday. Well, something happened and she couldn't go. And several weeks went by, and I asked her again. I said, let's get uh, this church business done. This was on the 4th of July. All right, we'll go in the morning. Well, Orlando was awfully crowded, a lot of traffic. And I couldn't have looked too badly or she wouldn't ask me to go to church. And I hadn't had but about three that morning. And I needed this for medicinal purposes. I don't know how well built the church would be, you know. Might shake it down. And I had to stop at uh, the corners and ask policemen and why I stopped at the third corner rather than the first or the fifth. I don't know then. I know now. Divine guidance. But this policeman told me to turn to the right at that block the end of the street, there was a church. I didn't specify denomination or anything else. And lo and behold, I pulled up in front of St. Michael's Episcopal Church, the exact name, denomination of my own church in my backyard in Raleigh. And this pleased me because I at least would be familiar with the service. And when I went in, I walked into the greatest shock that I've ever had, and I shiver and shake when I think about it now. Because I got about 30 yards down that aisle, and the usher handed me a bulletin. In the Episcopal Church, mind you, a bulletin with a picture of a drunk passed out the table over the front of it with his glass and bottle. I nearly fainted. I thought my wife had planned every bit of it. <laughs> she didn't even know where I was. I couldn't get out. They crowded in so bad, and I had to sit there. I sat there for 55 minutes waiting for this man to drop this hellfire and brimstone sermon on drinking and, and uh, alcoholism or whatever it might be, but he never uttered a word about it. He went right on with the regularly assigned uh, sermon for the day and prayers for the day. I put the bullet in my pocket. This is something I've never done unless I needed evidence. I've been to church. Well, I had a witness this morning. And it was several weeks later that I was to read this on the back side, an article about alcoholism and the miraculous work being done by a fellowship known as Alcoholics Anonymous. This was my first conscious knowledge of Alcoholics Anonymous, as it might apply to me. To me, it was something like the Red Cross or uh, the YMCA or, I don't know, Salvation Army, these do good things. And, uh, well, my sister was in it. This didn't make a difference to me because in the first place, she, and I'm not Catholic, I love them, but she joined the Catholic Church and I wasn't a Catholic, so this was foolish. Then she married a Yankee. My God, this was horrible. I mean, you know how we think sometimes. And when she joined AA, I said she completely flipped now. But, uh, and I hadn't seen her in 14 years. I didn't know what it's done for her. Anyway, my wife, realizing that it only takes three months in far to get a divorce, she came down to break this thing up. She didn't want to lose this uh, fine specimen of a husband, you know. And we became reconciled. I forgave her for all of her meanness and so on. That's right. And I would return to Raleigh and do something about my drinking, which I did. I drank more. About the only way I could do this was start drinking between drinks. And uh, but I was drinking all I could get. And things got awfully bad. I couldn't work. About all I was doing was getting up and trying to get rid of the shakes and the hangover and go play gin rummy all day. And how the world I came out of that without losing my eyes, I don't know. My wife became quite alarmed. She sent for my AA sister. 
came down from Boston, and uh, she knew better than to try to shove, shove a aid out of my throat. And she went away very heart sick, saying it probably had to get worse before it get better. But that she did think that I believed in God. Well, now, I would say that uh, I did believe in God, because when you were in the sort of shape I was in, it's a good idea to believe in anything that sounds good. I, I was sort of like the town reprobate who the doctor told him he was dying and he should have a priest or a pastor there. And he said, all right, get one. So the pastor came. The pastor told him, he says, now's the time you're dying that you must accept God and denounce the devil. And he says, well, now, preacher, I'll accept God, but I ain't going to denounce the devil. He said, well, this can't be. It's inconsistent. He said, well, it's going to be. He said, well, why, man? He says, well, he said, with my past reputation and the uncertainty of my future, I ain't going to antagonize anybody. <laughs> and this, this was the way I was. It was a good idea to believe in God. But uh, if I did believe in a God, it was a God of fear. Anyway, a short while later, I'm supposed to go on jury duty. And you can't go and judge Bill Bigot's courtroom and get a drink of whiskey every 20 minutes, particularly if you're sitting impaneled in the box. And the only respectable thing I could do was go to the hospital. I still had some insurance, thank God. After a couple of shots of paraldehyde, I told the doctor I'd do it on my own. This is a mistake. And I nearly tore that hospital down. They had a earthquake out in West Yellowstone, and they said they felt it at Rex Hospital in Raleigh, but uh, it was tough. And after about two weeks, I had read this article. I read a book called Just One More by Dr. James Ram Free. I called AA, and old Haslam came, and later old Tom Burrell and Maggie, and later Mary Alice, and I went on past the following Monday to my first AA meeting. And I like what I saw and I like what I heard. I came back on Friday, still on pass from the hospital. And on Saturday went back into convulsions again. I had been rolled hard and put up wet. I was a sick person, I'll tell you. Well, sir, I went into this program insofar as possible for me, as sincerely as I knew how to, to the letter. I looked up and took the 12 steps by the dozen and that was simple, nothing to it. And before long, I was out talking when I ought to have been listening. And when I was talking, I wasn't talking AA. I was saying what I thought the people would like to hear so I'd be popular. I had gimmicks and props, a great entertainer. Oh, boy. When things were going along fine and Bill Wilson's position was in jeopardy, I'd be up there before long. I knew that. <laughs> My wife, thinking like so many of us do, that cut off the alcohol, everything will be rosy, and she reverted back to stomping and nagging and fussing about things like working and making money. <laughs> so after seven months, I miscarried badly. <laughs> and this time, you see, I had gone in there to save my marriage and to get my stomach straightened out so I could feel better and to save my contract for all the reasons that were wrong. And this time, rather than this alcohol giving me any comfort or reward and calming down my hostilities and resentments, it aggravated and boiled them up. I became extremely violent, something I'd never been. This wife
I loved so very much, I ran her away from home, fearful for her life. My minister, whom I dearly respect and admire, I ran him away, and he wasn't too sure about his safety. I've got a regular arsenal out there anyway. Threw my contract on my manager's floor, went home and burned up things, furniture and one thing or another. Ran your fist through a door, and I even burned a picture of Jesus Christ, and I denounced God. And this is how low a human being can get. Skid Row, my friends, is not a geographical location. It's in your soul. And I was on Skid Row to the very bottom. Something in here rubbed off of me. I was conscious stricken. I needed help. I knew it. And here again, God knocked on my door in the form of a mailman, bringing a little package of these little books 24 hours a day. I had ordered them, been giving them to pigeons and other people, uh, you know, being a nice guy and buying favor again, not having bothered to have read it. But they came that day, a package of six of them, and I tore the package open, and I couldn't read it, I was shaking so badly, and I took two or three drinks. And I opened this little book on March the 17th, which was the current date. And a phrase in there, and several pages later, I saw it again and again kept hitting me in the face that I must learn to wear the world as a loose garment and to live quietly with God at the center of my being. I had no idea what it meant. I knew it sounded important and that it applied to me. I was still sick. My wife and her brother-in-law called me over to his house to discuss divorce proceedings. I didn't know it. When they saw me, this was the first time that they ever realized how sick that I was and that I was not just a moral leper. And by way of the Veterans Hospital, I ended up over at Butner, North Carolina, our Alcoholic Rehabilitation Center. And you've heard of cold turkey. This was frozen buzzard. They give you nothing. Now they do. But for eight days and nights, I've never done such screaming and climbing the walls and I literally dug plaster and wallpaper from under my fingernails after I finally leveled off that. It seemed like eight days you're supposed to be better, and I was getting worse every day. And I knew that I was dying. This I knew. I had gotten to the point on that eighth night, I was too weak to shake. I just trembled and quivered. My breath was coming very, very weakly. And I was quite sure that I was dying, and I think that I was. I was so near gone that had a rat been perched up here about to bite my nose, I couldn't have even fanned at it. If someone had put a drink within an inch of my hand, I couldn't have taken it. And I was in no position to ask for anything at all because I was full of resentment and hate and bitterness and contempt backed in a corner. And I've heard so many times prior to that in sense that man's extremity is God's opportunity. And in simple, sobbing, childlike prayer, I said, God, please help me. And immediately, it wasn't a second that I became calm. I quit quivering and sweating. At first, I seemed a little bit suspended, and then I settled down to that mattress like a balloon does when you let the air out. And I was scared. Actually, I think I died and was reborn right in the scene. I don't know how to explain this. There was no flash of lightning or no clap of thunder, not even a still small voice. 
The only thing I know is there was a certainty that God loved me. And this was the most important thing in this world. And I went to sleep. And I awakened next morning fresh and strong and hungry. And my liver, which I couldn't have touched with a feather the night before, I could pound on it. My lips were not parched. And I did not have the desire for any alcohol whatsoever for the first time in 30 years. But the greatest of all, there was no fear in me anymore. I had no fear. I was bewildered. I sat down immediately and wrote my wife that something had happened. I had some sort of a conscious contact with God. I went down into the lobby. Several of the patients looked at me and said, What in the world has happened to you? And here at the first opportunity to tell the good news, I was afraid they would laugh. I said I had a good night's sleep. Now I'm no longer afraid to tell it. I had had a conscious contact with God, and since then I've had many reassurances of it and other fleeting and limited contacts, much more than I deserved. This, of course, was a spiritual experience, not a spiritual awakening, which was to come much later with me. This was not a case of letting go and letting God, as we read and hear about. Because I wasn't letting go. I was hanging on for dear life, but whatever I was hanging on to broke. And I was caught up by the everlasting arms. I didn't bother to thank him. I came back to this wonderful AA program where I had seen so much. Particularly those five greatest religious democratic words I've ever heard, God is I understanding that what this hard-headed drunk choose to understand, and not the bishop, my wife, or Bill Wilson, or anyone else, but is what, as I chose to understand. And of course, I've learned to know him as a God of love, and I can't associate his name with fear at all anymore. Oh, this is a beautiful and wonderful program. Born of a spiritual experience. You can't describe it. It's a spiritual entity or a wholeness and wherever it's ever been, its influence is always remembered. I think sometimes that someone on the outside could probably describe it better than we and have. Dr. Frank Laubach, one of the great spiritual mystics of this world today, in his little legend about the difference between heaven and hell under an identical set of circumstances, he says in hell when they go to the banquet table, which is a long rectangular table with benches, the food is put in narrow neck bowls, People come in to eat, but they all have stiff elbows and stiff wrists. They can't get to their food and eat, so they flail their arms around and argue and fuss. And in heaven they have the identical situation right on down to the stiff elbows and wrists. But these people reach across the table and feed each other out of each other's arms, hands, and bones. That's AA. We feed each other. And that beautiful anonymous poem someone put in Reader's Digest was the first place I saw it. I sought my soul, my soul I could not see. I sought my God, my God eluded me. I sought my brother and I found all three. And that's it. We seek our brother and we feed each other. And this God, as I understand him now, you people have told me what many chaplains and many clergymen couldn't. Too often... A long, sour-faced clergyman pointed his finger down at me and said, Repent! And not bothering to tell me what repent meant. I thought it meant to cringe and crawl before him and cower. And I have learned from you, 
and your referrals. It means rethink. It means what the old Greek word metanoia, to be willing to be transformed. It means take an inventory and tell it to somebody else. So simple, so wonderful. It was some time before I took the third step. I had taken the fourth, first, second, fourth, and fifth, imagine such a thing, and found that I hadn't taken the third. And on May the 30th, after coming away from Butner, following a prayer meeting, a prayer group meeting, which I listened to a tape of a Cliff Richmond, a civilian, I wrote in this little book that tonight I have asked the Holy Spirit to come into my life and to dominate my thoughts and actions, and I look for a new life. And it has been. It really has. The third step was taken, and then the fourth. And in the wonderful fifth step, having taken it, I then walked through that arch which led me to freedom, the freedom you have taught me. In my short tenure in AA, I have evolved upon a spiritual exploration that has been the most wonderful experience in my life. I do a lot of reading and listening. The big book and the great big book, Frank Lawbach, Star Daly, Sam Shoemaker, Blessing, and more lately, Dr. Paul Turnay, and many, many others, but most of all, listening to the counsel and advice of the old-timers. All is so wonderful. It has led me to put together something which uh, is not a philosophy. I keep it in first person because I certainly can't offer advice yet. I call it wearing the world as a loose garment. And this is the way you have taught me to ask God for things. And I ask God to let me go calmly and quietly amid the noise and haste of this sick world in which I live. For it is a sick world with its false sense of values and its phony yardstick of success. But let me wear it as a loose garment and not as a burden. Let me take pride in my career, however humble that it may be, for it is the treasure in the changing values of time. Let me be cautious in my business affairs, for the world is full of trickery and dishonest machinations. But let me not be blind to what virtue that there is, for all around me high principles and high ideals are being practiced, and heroism is still great in evidence. And let me not pretend affection, but neither let me be cynical about love, for this is the greatest thing in this world and is as perennial as the grass. It may look dead, but it will always return. And let me not compare myself with others, there shall always be greater or lesser persons than myself. This is so vividly pointed out in the Beatitudes, the blessed of the meek and the long-suffering, the peacemakers, etc. I will have my God-given reward as a result of my own God-given talents and personalities, and I need not copy anyone else. And let me remember that I am a child of this universe, that I have every right to be here as much as the stars and the trees and the animals and everyone else. And that God is my Father, and being so, let me search in my prayers and meditations deep into my soul, and become acquainted with the Holy Spirit that lives and dwells there. For here lies all of the knowledge and the strength and the power that I need for any occasion, and all I need do is draw upon it with faith. But let me not 
expect the results to come out on my pattern or my timetable, but that of God's. He didn't make me a puppet on a string, and therefore I can't expect to pull the string on him. And so, with all of its heartaches and tragedies and disappointments and phonyism and politics and wars and atomic bombs and everything else, if I wear it as a loose garment, it's still a pretty wonderful world in which to live. I mentioned the Sermon on the Mount a moment ago, St. Matthew also there, using Jesus' words in modern terminology, said something that has great application for AA. And that's when he said that the gate that leads to destruction is big and the road is wide and there are many who follow this way. But the gate that leads to real life is small and the road is narrow and there are only a few who ever find it. I think in AA that we open that little gate with honesty and we stay on that narrow road by facing reality. And I'm profoundly grateful, grateful to be among the few who are beginning to find it. Now, I know a miracle has taken place in my life, my friends. And I know that there's some things that I must do if I'm to keep this miracle active. I'm reminded that Jesus, in performing his miracles where people were concerned, they were instructed to do something. From the crippled man by the pool in Bethesda, he said, take up thy bed and walk and others, right on down to Lazarus, who was dead and decomposing, he says, Lazarus, come forth. So I must do things. The big book tells me that as an ex-problem drinker, my very life depends upon my constant thought of others and how to help fill their needs. So I must continue to carry the message in every possible way that I can and be responsible. I must try to practice these principles in my affairs. I must seek those two greatest of human qualities, love and humility. And if, if I can do these things, I need never fear even being confronted by the Ten Commandments. Thank you and God bless each and every one of you.